And for those of you who remain, uh, we continue our series in this section of Titus. We've been looking at these 10 verses for the last three weeks. Uh, We focused on the first eight verses for the past two. Today we'll be focusing on verses 9 and 10, but the section holds together. And so I'll read all of these verses. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is God's Word. Let's pray that He would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, it's a passage that calls to mind all sorts of horrors. Because it brings up the specter of slavery. Help us not to be distracted from what you would have us know. About our own country's history. About what you were doing in Crete. About what you've called us to do and to be. But most of all, Lord, keep us from being distracted from that glorious doctrine of who you are, our God and Savior, that we might know you and be shaped by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can the church take over and change the world? Can we actually do it? Can we actually change the world? When I was growing up, there was a TV show called Animaniacs, and there was a little segment on that cartoon called Pinky and the Brain, and the the gist of it were these two lab rats, and it was the same plot every time. Pinky would ask Brain, what are we going to do tonight, Brain? Try to take over the world. And they would indeed try every night to take over the world. And they would do it with all sorts of different uh, schemes. They would try hypnosis, or he became a country music star one time and used subliminal messaging, or they would just try to uh, entice everybody with this new thing, and then they would all have to come and and bow down to Brain, and all sorts of trickery, enticement, brainwashing. They tried to take over the world, and every night they failed. That was the comedy of it. And it was a cartoon, if I didn't mention that, just so you don't worry about lab rats taking over the world. But here's the thing. The church... So we try to change the world, so we try to make it a better place, we tend to rely on all the same sorts of things. 
Let's entice people. No, like, like just if you become a Christian, everything will be better about your life because you'll have the joy of the Lord and you'll be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Or, or we try to, to, to take the world by force and, and just like, let's get this person in that office and, and pass these laws and then people will see that our way is the best way. Or, or we might even resort to a little bit of trickery. I've heard tell of some churches that pass out envelopes at the end of every service and one of them might have a hundred dollar bill in it Ooh, come be a part of what we're doing here at calvary um we have sparkling grape juice (laughs) and yet as we look out in our culture doesn't it seem like we have less influence we have less prominence we've accomplished less change than we ever wanted or hoped. Why? How is it that we're supposed to be salt and light in the world? How is it that we're supposed to be agents of change in the world? What is the church for? And what these verses teach us is that the Lord uses the faithfulness of His people to change the world. The Lord uses the faithfulness of his people to change the world. We're going to consider that by asking three questions. And the first question is this, like how can we even talk about anything if we can't sort out what this issue of slavery is? Like it just rubs us wrong. How what and some of your translations try to soften it. They say bond servants. I, I intentionally read the other translation, slaves. Like, we have a lot of we have a lot of history with slavery. A lot of frustration with it, a lot of confusion about it. How does the Bible address it? And and how are we to take seriously this passage if it's talking about something that we as a culture have roundly condemned? And here's the thing, I mean, American chattel slavery, based in race and oppression and stealing of people, is roundly condemned in the New Testament, that condemns man-stealing, that condemns showing preferential treatment to people because they're of a particular class or gender or race or background. And though there have been many theologians, even in our own tradition, who tried really hard to justify the Southern institution of slavery with Scripture, the New Testament roundly condemns it. But that's not the only place in history that slavery has existed. It was in the ancient Near East, and the Old Testament is full of all kinds of laws regulating slavery and how we're the Israelites were to treat their slaves. And in some cases in the world of the ancient Near East, slavery was just as bad and as horrendous as it was in our own country's history. In others, it was a mercy. When one nation would conquer another, rather than killing all of the the military-aged men, they would enroll them into some work of service. But the Old Testament provided guidelines for that, to protect the humanity of those people. They were not property to be 
pot and soul. There is an emphasis on freedom and jubilee and allowing people to thrive as those made in God's image, even in the service of another. In Paul's own day, in the Greco-Roman culture that Crete was infused with, slavery was still a part of the world then. A lot of it was more analogous to indentured servitude, where people who found themselves in too much debt or or too much trouble uh, sold their labor uh, to another and uh, became indentured servants. But that doesn't mean that they were all treated nicely and with respect. It was still an institution fraught with cruelty. And even in our modern world, though we may not want to admit it, there is still an institution of slavery all over in all kinds of places throughout the world. What are we to do then with this passage? We have talked about the, the, the theological background of Scripture and what it says about slavery, what it says about our own American background in slavery. I'm not going to belabor that point any more than I already have this morning. What I want to call our attention to is this, that Scripture again and again and again and again looks out at a broken, corrupt, and sinful world and says, this is what it looks like to live for Christ in the midst of it. So many early believers, early converts, were slaves. And Paul, in this whole section, is is looking at where people are. Some of them were older men. Some of them were older women. Some were younger women. Some were younger men. There's Titus, the pastor. And many of them were slaves. And he has a word of encouragement for them. God has something to say to you, too. God doesn't disregard you because of your low estate. He hasn't forgotten about you because of your condition. He sees you. He knows you. And he has a calling for you, too. Scripture does this again and again and again. It recognizes that people are in horrible conditions. But God has something for them. Has something for you. When we went to Disney World a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, it feels like, um, you know, we bought the photo package and they take all these pictures so that you don't have to worry about taking the pictures. And some of them are really good. And there was one, it was perfect. We were perfect. We are the Swiss Family Robinson tree and we're on the stairs and we're just lined up perfect. And somebody snapped a picture of us and it's just like a great picture of our family that like you could frame and send out as Christmas cards or whatever, except there's this little five-year-old kid looking out above one of our shoulders and the flash caught his eyes just right so that they're they're like the the the, the demon looking eyes and he's just like smiling like this and it's like total photo bomb ruined an entire picture like you can't look at it and not see that guy but that's the thing that's the thing like some of those pictures they managed to capture oh there's your perfect family and nothing bad happened but then there are other pictures in that photo package where you're like it was crowded and we were tired and we were hungry and people are mean and that kid is just running around crazy photobombing everybody like that's the real world and as fun as disney world was yeah it was crowded and there were all kinds of people there scripture doesn't sugarcoat the real world that we live in. 
Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul himself says, look, if you're, if you're able to buy your freedom, buy it. There is an emphasis in the New Testament on freedom and dignity. And, and in his letter to Philemon or Philemon, however you want to say it, he, he encourages that love in Christ means you accept uh, a slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in the Lord. And what does that mean for how you react? He gives advice to masters that they should be kind and gentle and Christ-like in how they treat one another. But, but here, clearly, so many of the believers in Crete were enslaved that Paul doesn't leave them out. They have an important role to play in the life of the church in bringing change to the world. And in essence, what Paul does at the very beginning of the letter is he introduces himself as a slave. Paul, a bondservant, some of your translations may say, a servant, some of your translations may say, but it's the same word, a slave of God. And what he's doing here is he's identifying with these Christians in their difficult estate and saying, look, everyone serves something. Everyone serves someone, but you are people. Though you may be enslaved by earthly masters, you belong to the Lord. And he has given you a glorious calling that frees you to live for him no matter where you are. And that same calling is yours. That no matter where you are, you are the Lord's. And he can set you free to serve him. Where do you need the lordship of Christ over all things to set you free to be that salt and light in the world? Maybe you've found yourself somewhere in this passage. I'm, I'm older. I've lost a step, maybe, or I, I'm not at work anymore. I can't do some of the things that I used to do. I don't have the, as broad a reach or influence as I used to have, or, or I don't have the energy level that I used to have. And he says, there's a calling for you to be sound in the faith and love and steadfastness and to invest in those around you, your children, the younger people in the church and in your community, to to pass on to them what you have received from the Lord. Others are saying, I am young and my job is crazy. I've got a bazillion children running around. I can't even keep my, my world straight. I can't think about what It means to serve God. I've got too many other responsibilities. And then Paul's like, God is calling you too to something glorious, to just love your children, love your husbands, love your wives, serve him where you are. Maybe you are enslaved to someone, a servant to an earthly master who has many things that he's sending you about to do. And you are not less of a person because of it. God has a calling for you to grow in that same purpose and hope and faith that gives you confidence that you are the Lord's. He has called you to be salt and light where you are. 
to be faithful. So the second question I want us to consider then is what does that faithfulness look like? How can we be faithful in a world full of difficulties like slavery and oppression and wickedness and sin and whatever? Because the world makes it difficult to be faithful, doesn't it? I mean, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And yet the world, in, in one scholar's words, it, it teaches us over and over and over and over and over in every single way, at every single level, level that you, you aren't the Lord's. You are your own. And you're going to find your happiness and you're going to find your freedom and you're going to find your purpose and you're going to find your hope and you're going to find your joy in pursuing your own dreams, finding your own identity, being your own person and throwing off whatever shackles you see on you. And so we pursue all kinds of things that end up just enslaving us more. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to decide for myself. And sometimes that means that we become the very oppressors we hated because we're making our own way and we're not going to let anybody get in front of us. We'll crush anyone, even our spouses, even our children, to get our way, to put our happiness first. Or sometimes we get out there and we get lost and we don't know where to go and we get full of grief and sadness and we escape and we numb ourselves from the pain in a bottle or with TV or with more and more possessions and pleasures. And we find ourselves no better off. The world doesn't make it easy to be faithful to the Lord. It keeps telling us that you are your own. Why? You know, every house has its own rules, right? When you visit somebody for lunch, you know, some houses are like, oh, will you please take your shoes off at the front? Other houses are like, we don't care. Some houses, um, you know, everybody holds hands to pray before the meal. Other houses, they do, everybody just sort of does things their own ways. Every house sort of has its own house rules and doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just different. But we live in a world where the prince of this world, the devil, has his own rules and has set the house rules, if you will, to make you less human, to make you less fulfilled, to to take away and steal your dignity in Christ, to steal your purpose in the Lord, to, to fill you with lies that you think will lead you to the truth and will set you free, but it won't. And so what Paul tells these servants and slaves isn't go, do whatever you want. Forget what these people tell you. Flee, hide. He says you are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, being submissive to your own masters and everything. It's interesting the word that he chooses here, well-pleasing, is only ever used to speak about being well-pleasing 
to God. And what he's doing here is not saying, and so your masters, you should treat them like God. He's saying, serve your earthly masters as you would the Lord. God has called you to something. And, and this, by the way, takes away you know, any right that a master has anywhere to, to ask of their servants or slaves anything ungodly or unchristian. This is why we rightly condemn sex trafficking. This is why we rightly condemn these sorts of things. There, this is a being submissive as unto the Lord, being well-pleasing to God in what you are doing. Being of good faith, being trustworthy. And so you're not a person who's argumentative or, or thieving. You're not a person who is constantly insisting on your own way. You're not a person who's taking for their own gratification. You are a person who lives for the Lord wherever you are. With integrity and dignity in truth. And in holiness, even if you have an earthly master. And the reason is because when we are slaves to God, when we are servants to God, when He is our Lord, when He is our King, He doesn't treat us as second class. He sends us out as royal ambassadors. He has appointed us to the highest positions in the kingdom. And He has sent us out into this world as representatives of God. So these slaves with these earthly masters, Paul's not saying treat them as God. You serve the one true God. Now, in the way you relate to these people, be an ambassador of the living God. Have first in your heart a love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that is reflected in how you live and have a love for your neighbor that you want even your master to come to a saving knowledge of God, our Savior. All too often, we are tempted to rely on worldly tools to bring change in the world. We think that if we had more power, if we had more earthly power, wealth, political power, technical power, if we had more of that, we could, we could do more good. Or, or we rely on, on enticing people with those, those just sanctified versions of, of pleasure. Oh, but we have Christian rock music, and we have Christian movies, and we have Christian novels, and we have whatever. And some of those are good, and some of them aren't. Just like regular novels, some of them are good, and some of them aren't. But, but like we just try to clean up stuff and say, see, you can be a Christian and still have fun. And what Paul keeps bringing the members of the church in Crete back to isn't these worldly tools 
But those fundamental biblical principles that we are to be a people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. In Philippians, he talks about that looks like not insisting on your own way, but considering others is more important than yourself. This is a a sacrificial and selfless love for others that seeks their good, that seeks their eternal good. And so we can be faithful to the Lord in this world by, by always seeking Him and following Him in all of those relationships. And certainly, some of us will find ourselves in positions of power or influence. Some of us may gain political notoriety. Some of us may find ourselves in a a place where we have a a lot of people under our care. And, And there's an opportunity even there not to stumble into the worldly ways, but to even in those places love God and love our neighbor with all that we have and are. So the last question I want us to consider then is how does that faithfulness change the world? How does our faithfulness in loving God and loving neighbor change the world? It doesn't. Think about the prophets. Think about the apostles. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was perfect and righteous in every way. Who was faithful. And they died. What did we say at the beginning? What is Paul teaching us? The Lord uses the faithfulness of his people to change the world. Even here, Paul is saying, why do we do these things? So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We we are not the power to bring change, true, lasting, healthy, wondrous, glorious gospel change into the world. The Lord is the only one who has the power to bring that lasting and glorious change. And he does. And he he uses our faithfulness. He invites us into that work. He, He puts us in these places and in these positions, high and low, that he might work his power through us to bring that change. But it's not us. It's not our faithfulness that is the power. It is the Lord. And it's important that we remember that because the, the, world, the world is deeply infected. We, our sinful natures, we are deeply infected. It is like a, a cancer that corrupts everything. And those of you who have endured or are enduring cancer treatment know that they don't just hand you uh, a milkshake and say, this will make you feel better. Maybe for a minute. But the corruption remains. 
We need deeper treatment, deeper than we have the power to do. But the doctrine of God our Savior is a a proclamation of truth that our Lord Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, has purchased the forgiveness of sin. He has disarmed every power and principality. Every nation will bow to him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is exalted to the highest place. He's given the name that is above every name. And he is enthroned on high and he is making every enemy of God a footstool. And he invites us to be his ambassadors, to declare the good news that our God reigns. You may be my earthly master, you may be my earthly employer, but my God reigns and he reigns forever. And in how I work, in how I live, and how I relate, God is able to use that faithful service to bring more and more people and institutions himself. And so we should be a people who are about doing good in the world. We should be a people who are about building institutions that that have lasting and staying power for good. We should be a people who are about using all of our gifts and all of our positions for the glory of God. But our faithfulness, it's not to point to us, but it is to point to Christ, our King, that people might know him. And this is what the saints of old have done. God has shown again and again and again that he has the power to change the world through the ordinary faithfulness of his people. Think about Paul's letter to Philemon that, that lays the foundation of no longer enslaving others because they are made in God's image. And and if they are in Christ, they are our own brothers and sisters, that we should receive them as such. Think about Ruth, who, who simply went with her decrepit, old, barren mother-in-law and, and picked up the remnants of food in a field. And God used it to redeem that family, to redeem that line, to bring about the the greatest king that Israel ever knew, King David, who was the forefather of our own Lord Jesus Christ, all through the faithfulness of a, a poor Moabite woman. God has used the faithfulness of his people again and again and again. Even Paul in his faithful ministry, God has used it to, to form a a foundation of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that foundation of the apostles and prophets, was the church rests that we might know who our God is and what he is able to do. He can still do that, and he still does do that today. So where are you? In our modern American culture, the most analogous application for these instructions is employer-employee. So start thinking about, like, in your work. How is your work and your relationship with those who employ you or with those you employ reflecting your love for God and neighbor? 
But as we've seen even earlier in this passage, it's also about our family relationships, our church relationships, our community relationships, in all of these things and in all of these places, wherever you are, God sees you. He knows you. He has a calling for you. He has lifted you up to be an ambassador of his glory. And he sends you out. Go, adorn the glorious good news of who I am with your faithfulness. Because the Lord uses the faithfulness of his people to bring change to the world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this truth is too wonderful for us. Sometimes we look at our relationships, we look at our jobs, we look at our our lives, our families, our communities, and they seem broken beyond repair. They seem corrupted beyond redemption. And yet you have given us this good news that you tell us is the power of God for salvation of all who believe, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Help us, O Lord, to see afresh and anew the glory of who you are, that we might go out as your ambassadors, as salt and light, that you might bring change to our families to our communities, to our church, to the world for good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.